great to see you again. Um, I want to share something with you today, and I'm going to do something that I have never, ever done before. Wow. For a guy that's been uh, in ordained ministry for 40 years, to say that I'm going to do something I've never done before, that's kind of unusual. And um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you a message that I shared the last time I was with you in January. And uh, I kind of wrestled with God a little bit and said, God, are you sure you want me to do that? Uh, I have preached the same message in different places many times, but I've never been somewhere and said, I preach this message to you, and I'm preaching it again. The only thing I can think of is God wants you to hear it again. God wants you to be aware of what I said before. For the next three weeks, I'm going to talk about God's presence. And I'm going to talk about the Holy Spirit. And that is what makes the difference in our lives and really everyone else. All the other religions, all the other philosophies, all the other churches or whatever. There is one thing that distinguishes us from them. And that is the presence of the living God. We serve Yahweh. Yahweh is the only eternal creator God of the universe. And when he is present and when God is in our lives in that way, it's totally different. When I was, um, when I was about 19 years old, I was working in a small town in Texas. And I didn't know God. I wasn't raised in a church family. We never went to church when I was a kid. All I knew about Sunday morning was that my parents made us stay inside and be quiet because it was a day of rest. (laughs) What is that about? Anyway, when you're, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, the last thing you want to do on Sunday morning is just stay inside and do nothing. So anyway, uh, I didn't know anything about church. I knew nothing about religion. And I was um, working at a small radio station in Borger, Texas, seeking fame and fortune. <laughs> you should laugh there at that part because it was Borger, Texas, and there was no fame and there was no fortune there. But anyway, I was working at this radio station, and one day a pastor came in uh, to prepare a message, to record a message that it was going to be played on Sunday. And uh, he was a nice guy. I didn't know anything about him. Uh, But he came in, and he was back in the back production room, and he was recording, and something went wrong with the equipment. And he came to get me to help fix it. So I went back there, and I was working with it. And the rest of that time there is kind of a blur for me. All I know is this. He began to share... the gospel with me. He began to tell me that I was lost, that I was a sinner, and that God sent his son, Jesus, to come and to save me from that sin and to redeem me. And that I would just give my life to him. If I would do that, he would save me and I would live for eternity with him. I think that's what he said. As I said, I don't remember the exact words, 
But it was probably something like that. And I'm guaranteeing you that all of those words he was using, I didn't know. Save me. What does save me mean? That he would forgive me? What did I ever do to him? Why Why do I need forgiveness? That he would, you know, whatever. The words meant nothing to me. I'm, I'm, I'm sure of it. Paul says that the gospel is foolishness to the natural mind. So when it's just the natural mind hearing words and trying to understand them, the gospel, what, what he shared with me about God loving me and coming to save me and forgiving me, it, it, made, it made no sense. But here's what happened that day in that little bitty production room in Texas. The presence of God came into that room. And as you sit here this morning, all you have is my word for and description for what happened. And you don't understand what a difference that made. I didn't understand what he was saying. I didn't really know what I needed. But there was something in that room that day that changed my life. And that something was the presence of God. I didn't know how to describe it. I had no words for it. I had no theology. I didn't know what to say. All I knew, if I had to describe it that day with the words I had, I would say that there was a peace. There was an enormous sense of peace in that room that day. I just felt like, wow, I've been gone. And I've been lost. Because he said I was lost. But I, but I feel something here that feels lovely and wonderful and inviting. And I want that. Who doesn't want peace in their life? Who doesn't want love and joy? And that's what I was feeling. I had no words for it. But I sensed for the first time that day in my life the presence of God. He asked me that day, David, would you like to become a Christian? What do you think I said? I said, I don't think so. (laughs) Now, you would think I would say yes. I mean, I've just been in the presence of God, the peace, the joy. But it was just so much to absorb. All I could think of was, "I I don't know. I don't know how to process this. Somehow I had a suspicion, I don't know how I knew this, somehow I had a suspicion that there was going to be big changes if I said yes. (laughs) You know, uh, well, maybe God will want to do things. I don't know how I knew that, and I don't know how I processed it all, but I just knew that if I said, yeah, sure, please, I'm thinking there's... So when he said, David, would you like to be a Christian? I said, I don't know. I I just, I don't know. And he said, well, can I pray for you? And I said, yeah. (laughs) Sure, you know, (laughs) what was I going to say? Yeah, go ahead. So he prayed for me, and that prayer was something like this. God, help David to be able to give his life to you as soon as possible. Amen. Sounded a little threatening, but okay. He walked out of that room, and I walked out of that room, and I've never seen him again. I hope in heaven I get to see him. Because as far as I know, he has no idea that I ever became a Christian. 
that the Holy Spirit, that's God's presence, the Holy Spirit didn't leave me alone. And I mean that in a good way. When I left that room, that presence went with me. And the presence become, became, wow, I, I, I was struggling. I, I didn't know what to do. Long story short, about four months later, wow, this could be a long story. I won't get into it. But about four months later, I was in a totally different state in America, in Missouri, small town in Missouri, small town Texas, small town Missouri. Who knows where these places are? Most of America wouldn't know where Borger, Texas is or Poplar Bluff, Missouri. <laughs> but God knew where they were. And so I'm in that town in Missouri and someone invited me to church. And I thought, yeah, maybe, I, maybe I should check this out some more. So I went to church that night with that person. And somewhere, somewhere in the process of having church that night, I sensed that presence again. That presence of a God that would love me unconditionally. That presence of a God that would forgive me. That presence of a God that said, I'm your father. I'm your father. Just come with me. It was the same exact presence that I felt four months earlier in Texas. A radio station in Texas, a church in Missouri. What was the common denominator? The common denominator was the presence of God. When the presence of God is in the room, it makes everything different. Did I understand everything? No, it was still foolishness to me. I didn't understand how I could be saved just for saying, okay, sorry. <laughs> but it was an undeniable, unmistakable presence of what I now know to be God. I now have 40 years of ministry and multiple theological degrees to describe the Holy Spirit and God and his workings. But nothing, nothing, nothing I've ever learned makes the difference that the presence of God makes. So God, be present today. I know you're present. I know you've said you would never leave me and you would never forsake me. I know you're there with us when we feel you're there and when we don't feel you're there. But God, be present today. Speak your word to us that we might walk from here in your power, and in your anointing. Amen. Well, last January, what I said to you was that my wish for you for this year was that you would walk daily in the empowering presence of God. Nothing is more exciting, nothing is more fulfilling, nothing is greater than experiencing God's presence in our life. Conversely, nothing is more difficult and nothing is more unsatisfying than trying to walk the Christian life in your own strength and in your own power. It is a recipe for failure. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God. It is the empowering presence of God. 
It is the presence of God that brings power and anointing and change into our lives and the life of the people around us. Without him, as I said, it's a very, very difficult walk. What I shared with you last January was sort of a quick run through the Bible on what it's like when God is present. And we started off in, where else would you start? Genesis chapter 3, in the beginning. God created this place called the Garden of Eden. And he's put it there, and the purpose of it being there was not just that it was beautiful and it had all this creation. The purpose of the Garden of Eden was that was where God was going to meet with man and they were going to have fellowship with each other. That's what distinguished that place from the rest of the world was God's presence in the Garden of Eden. And so God met there on a regular basis with Adam and with Eve. And you know the story. They kind of messed up. They made a mistake. They sinned. They rebelled against God. And God said, Adam and Eve, what you don't understand is I am a holy God. I am a God that loves you without beginning and without end, but I am a holy God, and I cannot stand sin in my presence. And so he expelled them from the Garden of Eden, not because he didn't love them, not because he didn't want fellowship with them, but because God cannot be in the presence of sin. And so that sin separated man and God. They walked out of the garden, and God set an angel at the entrance of the garden to make sure that they weren't able to go back. So he banished them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which they had been taken, it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23. And after he drove them out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Man walked out of the garden that day and he was told it's going to be difficult. Working the ground is going to be different from when you enjoyed it in the Garden of Eden. It's going to be difficult. But all of those things weren't the main difference. The main difference was Adam and Eve left the presence of God. Now, if you want to understand the Bible, in fact, almost everything else in the Bible, if you don't understand Genesis chapter 1 through 11, it's going to be difficult for you to understand the rest of the Bible. You read Genesis chapter 1 through 11, and you will see what life is like outside of the presence of God. I mean, I won't go into the Cain and Abel story and the Lemek who, you know, said, I'm going to kill these other guys. It's just, a, it's just a spiral downward, all those chapters. And you know the story of the flood and you know the story of Abraham. Abraham, Abraham somehow knows that there is one, not many, one eternal creator God of the universe. And he met that God, and, and, and God revealed himself to Abraham and said, my name is Yahweh. Now, you know, we could go on and on about that, but I, I was told, don't preach until 4 o'clock, so we won't be here. Until, but uh, the, 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 Abraham knows him, and God says, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and he does that. But hundreds of years go by, and you know the story of all of the sons of uh, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, and how they're down in Egypt, and they're, and they're there for you know, hundreds of years, and they're being abused, and God remembers them. And God meets with Moses. 
God has a plan. You see, what I want you to really understand out of all of this is that from Genesis to Revelation, and we start thinking about Genesis being the creation and Revelation where that creation is restored and that personal presence of God is with us all the time. But those two are not just sort of separate times. All through this Bible, all through the ages, God has had a plan to have fellowship and restore fellowship with his creation because that's why he created you. He created you that you might have fellowship with him and that he might have fellowship with you. And he loves you so much that he wanted to make a way to restore that. Well, uh, again, I won't dwell on it too long, but in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is out in the wilderness one day. He's tending the flock of his father-in-law. And all of a sudden he sees over here there's this bush. And this bush is burning. But it's not consumed. That's a little unusual, don't you think? I mean, you know, this bush is burning, but it's not burning up. And so Moses turns aside to go look at it. And... It says in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock out to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. He led the flock out to the far side of the wilderness. That's Bible speak for Borger, Texas. (laughs) Okay, come on. You know, he's out in the middle of nowhere. What's God doing out there? Why does God meet him there? Well, he, 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 he led him out to this mountain called Horeb, which we will find out later is also the same place called Mount Sinai, which has a very important meaning. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within the bush. And Moses saw through the bush, and Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. The point I want you to understand here is that God takes the initiative and God finds Moses and God meets with Moses in a very special way. And one of the physical ways that Moses is attracted to this and understands there's something unusual here is this fire. This fire, this bush that is burning but is not burned up. And so he meets with Moses there and tells Moses he wants him to do something. I want you to go down to Egypt and I want you to leave my people out. Of course, you know all that big long story. Moses says, can't do it. No, thank you. (laughs) Moses says, uh, you know, send someone else. And God sends him and the plagues and the crossing of the Red Sea and all of that stuff. And God brings them back and God brings them back the entire nation, not just Moses this time, the entire nation. He brings them back to this same place that he met with Moses the first time, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 19, verses 17 to 18, it says that Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood on the foot of the mountain Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire so again get this picture God's meeting with his people the presence of God came onto that mountain and Moses was told by God do not let the people get close to the mountain do not let them come and touch the mountain if they do they will die once again we have to understand that God is a holy God And when we come into his presence in sin, he cannot stand that. And so he said, don't let them come on the mountain. Don't let them touch it. But Moses went up to the mountain and the presence of God came down. And it says, the Lord descended on it in fire. So you see that there was this 
presence of God that was distinguished by, that was seen by this fire. Well, um, another long story. The Bible's full of long stories, but they're pretty good. And um, another long story about how the people of Israel right away sinned. They made a golden calf. They worshipped other gods. You know, and Moses is on the mountain getting the, you know, talking with God face to face. And these people are down there sinning. So anyway, they go down and God wants to deal with them. God wants to wipe them away. Moses says, no, don't do that, God. And then, you know, God says, okay, I relent to that. And I'm going to send him into the promised land. But I'm not going to go with you. I'll, 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 I'll send someone else with you. And God says to Moses that he'll send Moses, but God won't go with them. And Moses said to the Lord in Exodus chapter 33, this is not on the slide, so don't worry back there in the control room. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, leave these people, but you have not let me know with whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and I have found favor with you. have found favor with me. But if you are pleased with me, this is Moses talking to God. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know your name and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But before that, Moses pleads with them and he says, um, if, you don't, if you don't go with me, then I don't want to go. Don't send us up if you're not going to go with us. And so God agreed to do that. Moses said to them, if your presence, verse 15, then Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with me? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? <laughs> Pretty good question. God, if you don't go, don't make me go. Because Moses knew that it wasn't Moses that was favored. It wasn't Moses that was powerful. Moses knew it was God. And only God's presence would make a difference. And so Moses said, if you send me up and you're not going with me, I don't want to go. What will distinguish us? What will make us different from all the people of the earth except you? Now, church, you can say that and we will see that today. What makes you and I different from all the other people of the earth. Sleepless nights, trying to stay awake. <laughs> anyway, Leviticus is that book that has all those rules and regulations and all that information about this strange place that God once built called the tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, he says, build it this wide, this tall, this deep, do these things. And if you're not careful, you miss something. You miss the fact that God says to uh, Moses, when you build this tabernacle and you make these um, these, these, th this uh, fabric, weave into it this palm tree. Weave into it this flower. Weave into it a picture of this river. If you were able to go into that tabernacle and look at all of the ornate things around there, it would look very much like sort of a miniature Garden of Eden. And the most important thing about that miniature Garden of Eden was this place in the very inside called the Holy of Holies. 
which is where God's presence dwelt. You couldn't go there. Moses couldn't go there. Other people, only the high priest would go there once a year to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people every year. Fast forward a little bit, and in that tabernacle, you have this picture of fire as well. Fast forward a little bit, and a couple of generations later, Solomon gets the idea, I want to build a temple. And we're going to have this permanent place that's going to be the temple for God. And so they build this temple, and in 1 Kings chapters eight, uh, chapter 8, verses 10 to 11, it says, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, so they had this ornate temple built. You know that story. David gets all the money. Solomon builds the place. They have this huge ornate place with this great big ceremony, sacrificing all these animals. And it says, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. God's presence made the difference in that temple. Well, that's the way it was for quite a long time. There was rebellion again. There was all these problems. And it went, several hundred years went by. But God's plan wasn't finished. Remember I said this is one story. This isn't lots of stories. From Genesis to Revelation, God has had a plan. God's plan was to redeem fallen man so that he could restore them to that place of fellowship with him again. And so the Bible says in the fullness of time, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, Jesus. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as a one and only son of God, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That word dwelling is the same word as tabernacle. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, lived among us, resided among us. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came into this world And he knew at some point, I'm not sure what the three-year-old, the four-year-old Jesus knew. We knew that the 12-year-old Jesus had a sense of mission about being in his father's house. But Jesus knew that his mission was to die, was to be that one and only perfect Lamb of God sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. And when he did that and he died, that was his mission but that's what Jesus was doing. He came to be with us. Jesus said, my name is Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what he was going to be called. So Jesus makes his dwelling among us and lives his life among us and made our place his abode or his living place. Now, because Jesus knew that he would not be here physically forever, he starts talking a very strange way to the disciples. The disciples, after, you know, three years, and the disciples, I mean, let's be honest and fair, they didn't know what was going on. You know, they were sort of picking up on some of the clues, but most of the disciples 
uh, had this common feeling, like a lot of people in Israel, that, okay, God's, they're going to, you know, the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to overthrow Rome, and we're going to have this earthly kingdom, and woohoo, we get to lead and reign and be a part of something great here in this world. But Jesus starts talking about sort of the upside-down kingdom, where leaders become servants, where people die for the cause, and he's going to give his life and die and go away. Now, picture this. You're with this guy who's convinced you to give up all of your life and change your life and go with him, and you see him doing miracles, and you see him doing just marvelous things, and you're kind of dependent on him, you know? I mean, where Jesus is, the presence of God is, and these wonderful things happen, and Jesus starts talking about, I'm going to go away. Ooh, hold on, Jesus, you know, where are you going? Well, where I'm going, you can't go. How would you feel if you were a disciple? He told you that. And, uh, but anyway, Jesus knew he was going away, but he says, here's the really good news. I'm not going to leave you alone. You're not going to be orphans. I'm going to ask the Father, John chapter 16 and verse 7, but truly I say to you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him to you. So Jesus knows that when he dies and gives his life for sinful man, that man needs God's presence. And we're going to experience the presence of God in a way that has never been experienced before. We're going to experience the Holy Spirit coming into this world in a different dimension that's ever been experienced before. And so one of the last things Jesus says to his disciples is, look, wait in Jerusalem and don't go out to do these things until you have received power from on high. You see, church, again, what Moses said to God is the same thing we know today. What distinguishes us from all the people of the earth, all the religions of the world, all of the different people? What distinguishes us as Christ followers? It is the presence of the one and only living God. And when that presence is in our midst, be it collectively in a church or individually in your life, there is a difference in how people respond to you and what God does in their life. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, you've heard these before, but when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed like tongues of fire. Remember we talked about fire being sort of a distinguishing example of God's presence. It's a very strange thing to look at, isn't it? When you just take it out of context and you say, tongues of fire, what, what is that? Well, the only way they could describe it was something was over the heads of people and it looked like fire. It looked like tongues of fire. And what did we say? Fire is that sort of distinguishing presence of God. And it said that um, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Tongues of fire became the symbol of the Holy Spirit. Now look, the Holy Spirit has come to live in us and with us. And to give us power. To give us 
the strength that we need to live this Christian walk. I can promise you, if you go out of here today and attempt to live for Christ in your own strength and your own power, you will fail. But if you say, Holy Spirit, live within me, guide me, help me, direct me, empower me. It is the presence of God, God's empowering presence, that makes a difference in all of our lives. The disciples understood that. They went out from that room and they started to share the gospel and there was something totally different about before when they were, you know, sharing about Jesus and afterwards and people were responding to it. And, and even the leaders of, 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 of the Sanhedrin said, the religious group, they said, we don't understand it. Aren't these uneducated, unlearned men? But somehow there is difference and anointing in their life. They saw a difference in these disciples, not in their education, not in their social status, but there was something different. And that difference was the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. That is what makes it different. Well, Paul would say later on to the church in Galatia, talking about the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. That's another thing I think is very interesting. We talk about we want to have the fruit of the Spirit in our life. And then we, start, and then we go about trying to develop these things, love and joy and peace and gentleness and patience and long-suffering. You all know how hard that is, right? Man, those are, you know, someone said, don't ever pray for patience. Because the only way for that to happen is to God to give you circumstances where you need patience and that's tough. Anyway, you know, when we go out and we start saying, I want that fruit of the Spirit in my life, and so I'm going to practice being more kind. <laughs> if you do that, God will send you some of the most unkind people, usually, into your life, and you will find how hard it is to be kind to unkind people. You can ask my wife. I'm a relatively nice person until I get on the highway behind a car that's annoying me, that's being inconsiderate. And anyway, I won't go into it, but the point is, is that it, it can be difficult to be kind and to love people. And I'm saying to you, if you try to develop that fruit as sort of something individual in your life, you will fail. But if you walk with the Holy Spirit and he walks with you, the fruit is the byproduct. The fruit is what you get from having that relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. And when you walk with him, he puts his fruit into your life. And he gives you power to live that life. And that's why Paul says to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, So I say, walk by the Spirit. Have God with you on this journey. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Since we live with the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Church, this is not a one-time event. I asked for God, the Holy Spirit, to fill me. He did. Thank you very much. I'll see you in heaven. <laughs> it's not the way it works. God says, walk with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. That's a daily activity where we spend time with God. And for the next two weeks after this, that's what I want to talk about. That's why I 
wanted to bring this message again. I want you to see this as the foundation, that God's presence, God's holy, empowering presence is what will enable us to live the victorious, overcoming Christian life. And it will mean the difference in you being filled and fulfilled and living for God in a way that is powerful and productive and just being a person of name only. Taxi driver asked Paul and I one time when we were in some country. I've been in a lot of them, so I forget, but it wasn't a Christian country. And he had a cross on his little dash, and Paul said something about it. And he said, yes, I'm a Christian. And we said, oh, hey, so are we. And he said, are you a Christian in name or are you a Christian in heart? Even the taxi driver knew the difference between someone who just has a name and someone who lives it. And living it requires God's empowering presence. Now, uh, I... I guess you know this, that there is no substitute when it comes to developing a relationship with God. There is no substitute to time, time, spending time with God is how you develop that relationship. Spending time with God is how you hear and distinguish his voice. Now, when I say spending time with God, it's not just prayer, but it's also the Word of God. I find that God speaks to me through His Word regularly. I have never heard the audible voice of God. I have never seen handwriting on the wall. I've I've never been... Can God do that? Absolutely. But I've never experienced that. But time and time and time again, God has taken His Word, His eternal living Word, and applied it to David Stanislaus in that moment where I was. So I, I, I believe when you, when you read large portions of God's word and spend generous time with him, you will know him. I, I said in the first service, I was talking about Paula, when I met her, I kind of liked her. Which means I, what? I wanted to see her again. And when I saw her again, I kind of liked her even more. And so I wanted to see her again. And I wanted to spend time with her. Now, how strange it would have been if we would have met and I would have said to her, I really like you. And then I never called her again. Or I never went to be with her again. She would have thought, what's wrong? Why why doesn't he come by? And the fact of the matter is, as I spent time with Paula, I got to know her better and better and better. And I fell in love with her more and more and more. And I'm saying to you, your relationship with God needs time. Now, I have a homework assignment for you. How many of you like that? Let me see everyone who likes homework. Okay, there's a hand in the back. He didn't understand the question. No, I'm teasing. Uh, The homework is this. In the coming week, I want you to read John chapter 15, 16, and 17. Those three chapters. I want you to read that every day. (gasps) Every day? Look, it's three chapters. You can read that in 10 minutes, probably. I want you to read that every day. And when you get done reading it, I want you to close your Bible and I want you to say, Holy Spirit, teach me what Jesus was saying here. 
And I want you to do that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And on Sunday, we're going to talk about that. Look, John chapters 14, 15, and 16 is the last night Jesus would spend with his disciples. It was the night before he was crucified. If he knew he was going away, and he did, and he knew he didn't have any more time to spend with these men, don't you think Jesus would tell them the most important thing that they need to know after he's gone? <laughs> and that's what he did. He's talking to them in those chapters about the Holy Spirit. Church, this is not just a doctrine of my church. This is the living, empowering presence of God that makes a difference, that comes into that little radio station in Borger, Texas, and takes the words of a preacher that are nonsense and makes them life. It's the same spirit that comes into that little church in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. And when I, when I sense it that time, I realized, I know what this is. This is God. I've felt this before. I know this. I want this. The Holy Spirit will take the words you speak to your neighbor and to your loved ones and to others, and they will no longer be nonsense. They will be the living, living empowering words of the God who loves them. Can I promise you that it always works out with goosebumps? No. But I know that from the beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, God is looking to have fellowship with his people, and that's us. And that comes through the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me for a moment this morning? And I know that uh, you have places to go and things to do. So I'm going to let you go from here in just a moment. But I want to pray for you. We were the beggars. Now we're royalty. We were the prisoners. Now we're Accept it,